The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 7. Hello, and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanrissey. At the end of last week's episode, the ghost of the dead king reappeared to our trio of watchmen on the battlements. It's worth noting that they haven't at all referred to him as a ghost. Their language has concentrated very much on his likeness to the king, as though they don't quite trust that it's him or that it's not him. Of course, they know rationally that the king is dead and buried, so the cognitive leap allowing for this vision to be the actual king is a big one. Horatio has just called the figure an illusion, a word loaded with the possibilities of performance and artificiality, whether created by divine, demonic, or indeed human hands. But even as Horatio demands that it speak, the ghost doesn't answer him and starts to walk away. Why? Very simple and even built into the stage directions, The Cock Crows. The Arden edition refers to a surviving prompt book by John Ward that has a warning some 30 lines earlier for one ready to crow to prepare. This clearly dates from before sound effects were an option, but it's such a charming detail that I wanted to share it. You can imagine the pride of the actor involved saying, oh yes, I played the crow in Hamlet, don't you know? The crowing of the cock is the key to the ghost's departure, and we will discuss it at length when Horatio brings it up. For now, though, the rooster, or the actor, is crowing, while Horatio enlists his comrades and shouts, Stop it, Marcellus! Who says, Shall I strike at it with my partisan? Do, if it will not stand! Worth noting again that the men are still referring to this apparition as it, not him, or even his majesty. This ghostly figure, this thing, is still an it. We're only a few minutes into this unsettled world of Denmark, very late at night, so it's appropriate that nothing is confirmed or secure. Marcellus offers to strike at it with his partisan, a thoroughly medieval weapon. It was a spearhead mounted on a long pole and good for attacking people, or ghosts, from a bit of a distance. There could even be room for some physical comedy in this moment, since the ghost is exiting and the scared men don't quite know what to do. Attacking a retreating ghost with a Danish equivalent of a 40-foot pole could prove amusing, and I think that's all right that there's room for that, but not for long. Horatio encourages Marcellus do attack if he will not stand still and answer our questions. We have to bear in mind that the scene was likely played at the Globe in the afternoon, and so Shakespeare's actors would have relied to a great extent on the audience's suspension of disbelief. We've had a lot of setup and discussion through this scene of how cold it is, how late at night, and so on, and so despite the afternoon sunlight in which the players were acting, an audience will by now accept that it's dark, and these three watchers can't see very much beyond their own noses. So now, as the ghost disappears again, Shakespeare gets a bit more dramatic and has the men seeing it, or not seeing it, in different areas around the stage. Tis here! Tis here! Tis gone! Of course, with the move to indoor theatres and the development of special effects, any number of options became available, enhancing this confusion of the ghost's departure. Some productions use sound or lighting, or even have multiple performers in the same costume to give a sense of the ghost being capable of going or being everywhere. All such things are possible and can be dictated within any given production, but it is worth remembering the daylight conditions at the globe, happily reliant on audience and actors imagining together. 
Marcellus is the first to speak after the ghost departs. Indeed, Shakespeare builds a pause into the blank verse to guarantee a moment of panicked quiet as they make sure it has vanished. We do it wrong, being so majestical, to offer it the show of violence, for it is as the air invulnerable, and our vain blows malicious mockery. The ideas move very quickly through Marcellus' little speech here. The men, he feels, are insulting the apparition by acting with violence towards it. Shakespeare uses the word majestical here rather than majestic, which he uses in the plays that follow Hamlet. It's amazing to think that this is an example of the English language actually developing and Shakespeare himself responding to it. If majestical was already starting to sound like the old-fashioned version of the word, of course it's fitting to describe this vision of the king in his former glory. This really is the kind of detail that Shakespeare uses in his writing. Language is literally evolving as fast as he himself can write. Marcellus continues that the figure of the king is, as the air, invulnerable, meaning it cannot be hurt or wounded. This word likewise appears fairly infrequently in the plays, once referring to clouds and once to magic creatures likewise beyond reach. So, Marcellus explains, their jabs and blows are in vain and could even be considered malicious mockery. He obviously didn't want to get this figure to be mad at him. But Bernardo noticed something else. It was about to speak when the cock crew. And Horatio continues, And then it started like a guilty thing upon a fearful summons. Isn't it interesting that here Horatio puts a twinge of doubt in our minds about this ghost? Is it a guilty thing? If it's starting like this, has the fearful summons demanded that it return to hell? Shakespeare is very subtle in the way that he sends information our way. It's relentlessly excellent. The crowing of the cock is an almost universal symbol of the dawn. There are biblical echoes as when St. Peter denied Jesus three times before the cock crew. The symbolism of the rooster as the herald of the morning is easy enough to understand. With the dawn comes daylight, and as with most creatures that go bump in the night, ghosts and daylight don't mix. In reading up for this episode, I came across the peculiar detail that seemingly the cock crowing is powerful enough even to kill a basilisk. So it'd certainly be enough to hurry a wandering ghost back to wherever he came from. Horatio likewise has things to say about the power of this sound. I have heard the cock that is the trumpet to the morn doth with his lofty and shrill-sounding throat awake the god of day, and at his warning, whether in sea or fire, in earth or air, the extravagant and erring spirit hies to his confine, and of the truth herein, this present object made probation. This is probably the longest sentence in the play thus far. Horatio is catching his breath, working out for himself as much as for the others what has happened, rationalising at length. The speech covers science and myth, classical and Christian religious figures, and even legal language, as Horatio's very smart brain tries to find an explanation for what he has seen somewhere in his philosophy. The rooster is responsible for waking up Phoebus Apollo, god of the sun, and by extension, the god of day. Likewise, the bird's cry is a warning to the extravagant and erring spirit. 
Extravagant here appears in its more literal meaning, the spirit wandering beyond the limits of its resting place or confine. Horatio covers the four elements here, suggesting that a wandering spirit could be erring or misbehaving in sea or fire, in earth or air, but regardless, the crow of the cock is its warning to get back to bed before the sun comes up. The speech concludes with a very legal-sounding QED. The ghost's behaviour has been a clear demonstration or proof of the truth of what he's heard about the herald of the morn. Horatio uses the archaic meaning of several words in this speech, extravagant, probation, confine, and so on. The cumulative effect is an impression that he is indeed intelligent, rational, and educated, the scholar whose help the soldiers needed. It's Shakespeare, as usual, being very clever. He doesn't just have a ghost appear on stage, something that was by now very common in Elizabethan theatre. Instead, he has the ghost appear to a sensible, intelligent and even sceptical character, and so when he is convinced that the ghost is real, so are we. The soldiers and Horatio must now decide what to do about this appearance, since it is the real thing. And this will bring us finally to the end of Act 1, Scene 1 in next week's episode. There will also be a bonus episode next weekend celebrating one of Hamlet's great interpreters, so keep your eyes open for that coming your way in the coming days. If you haven't signed up for the podcast's mailing list, please be sure to do so as next month's newsletter and digest will likewise be coming out very shortly. Thank you for listening. And as ever, you can find show notes for this week and links to all previous episodes on our website, thehamletpodcast.com. You can subscribe and download the show from wherever you like to get your podcasts. And please do share or retweet and get the word out. It's very much appreciated. I'll be back with the next instalment next Sunday, and I hope you'll join me then.